Beervana Show, broadcast almost live in Portland on X-Ray FM and in Vancouver at KXRW, or available anywhere on your favorite podcast service. I'm Patrick Emerson, professor of economics at Oregon State University, and with me, as always, is Jeff Allworth. Hi, Jeff. Hey, Patrick. Author of several books, including The Beer Bible, which, by the way, I cracked recently. What? Yes. For, what? You know, for the second or third read. Yeah, right. What on earth possessed you to crack it? What, uh, what, what's, what information did you require? You uh, talked to me about upcoming podcasts. And so I thought, oh, let me do a little quick and dirty research ahead of time. So ah, that's why. On, today's, on today's topic. On today's topic. You know what's funny is I also cracked a book about today's topic. <laughs> but I completely blew off my own. I, I got yeah, the I have to say, it didn't help me much. <laughs> I went to the far superior Stan Hieronymus text. Ah, uh, yeah, so. <laughs> real beer writer, you mean. Uh, how you been? Uh, pretty good. So as we record this, it's Cinco de Mayo. So happy Cinco de Mayo. Sadly, we're not talking about Mexican beers today, but we have in the past, so go back and we had a whole Mexican beer taste off. If you want to know what to drink today, even though you're going to hear this days and days later. That's right. For next time, if you want to know what to drink, go to our podcast. Yeah, I think we may actually have done that for Cinco de Mayo. We may have been on the ball. I feel like maybe. That sounds very out of character. It does, but I, <laughs> I still believe it. <laughs> uh, well, it, it's certainly available at every Cinco de Mayo. You can. That is you right. Can, so for, in that case, yes, it's in perpetuity yeah. for Cinco de Mayo. So That's if you right. want to know what Mexican beer to, to drink, go there. And it was some pods ago. So I'm going to guess like pod 100. Many pods ago, yeah. But we did do a, a legit blind tasting taste off. And we did come up with a, a winner, so we did. hard to find, but it's a winner. Uh, yeah. Otherwise, things good? Things are good. Anything exciting happening? Uh, nothing exciting happening in particular. Uh, I think we should probably mention the, the weather, which today is uh, kind of cloudy. Back to clouds and rain after a nice sunny uh, week of, of sunshine and, and warmth. Yeah, so we had the typical thing last week, which was... It was gray and rainy for way too long here, but then cold, particularly cold, way right. too long here. Yeah. And griped and griped and griped. I think we griped on this pod. We did. And uh, and I said, yeah, when it gets hot, I'm gonna complain, of course. And then last week it did it did like a 180 from 50 degrees to 90 degrees. Yes. In and, like three days, it got to 90 degrees. And uh, oh man, I wilted. Yeah, I was, and I. And it I got thought... so hot that like normally. You know, only in the, the hottest of hot do I have to really, like, manage my house because I don't have AC. Right. And, of course, this is, you know, I'm in preseason form. I'm not expecting to have to, like, you know, close up my house in the afternoon and draw all the blinds and stuff. And, oh, man, it was tough to sleep that night. So, yeah, it got uh, blazingly hot. <laughs> Thanks, global warming. <laughs> right. What a head, what a head turner. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I, I know. And I knew I would be punished for my sins of complaining about the cold and wet, which I actually love a lot more than I like the sun. And and I was punished, and I felt <laughs> I felt uh, chastened. And now I look outside, and it's only 50 degrees. And, and things, are, and things and, are right with the world again. Yeah. Exactly. And now I think, okay, I, I have been chastened, and now I love this weather. Please, please, please stay as long as you like. Yeah. Uh, Welcome. I did just, just uh, uh, by accident end up outside... Uh, at a bar outside on picnic tables in the beautiful weather in the afternoon just because we had pre-planned we have a friend who was having a birthday and he wanted to 
his friends get together. So we all gathered, but ended up being on an amazing afternoon. So nice. that was nice. Drinking oh, beer in the full sun. I will tell you, I, I went to, I stopped in at the, the newish Fracture Brewing, which is on Stark Street. Mm-hmm. And they have a wonderful car pod next to them, which uh, the building, the brewery building, shades the cart pod which is to its east Mm -hmm. so it is a perfect outdoor seating area in the in the winter or i mean in the summer when it gets hot right uh and they have wonderful seating they've created a bunch of uh very cool seating options and fracture is is good i was really impressed with the beer so that's dark and uh 10th or 11th something like that right yeah right around yeah right in between 10th and 11th so um very centrally located next to 14 other breweries. Yeah, was there anything there before? No. So they just created I mean, there scratch. was no brewery there. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's, there. well, that's, these days, that's what I assume. Is right. That, oh, some new brewery's taken over some old brewery. Because <clears throat> that sort of seems to be the dynamic. Well, that's cool. Yeah. I'll have to, I'll have to check them out. It was very cool. Very close to um, Studio Central or Studio East right. or whatever it was. <laughs> whatever we call this. It's a quick walk from here. Uh, which is, which has its advantages. Um, uh, the other place that um, is particularly nice that I know you went to is the the uh, the level brewing on um, 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 Sandy. Yeah, I guess it's on Sandy. Yeah, it's on Sandy. It's on Sandy, and they've got a couple of carts there and a nice big big area to see outside. Uh, the only thing I want to say about my little outdoor patio adventure is that I had for the first time in donkey's years is uh, a rogue beer. Ah, nice and. I had kind of forgotten Rogue existed because you just don't see Rogue beer, even in grocery stores. At least I don't. Yeah, I, I mean, I see some Rogue in grocery stores. They have uh, their, their Hazy that I see a lot. What is that? Bat Squatch. I see Bat Squatch around. Oh, really? Yeah. This was an IPA. It wasn't a Hazy. It was nice. It was a really nice uh, IPA, a very modern, nice IPA. And I, I think they've just done so well making a name for themselves all around that Oregon is just one small part of their overall market so yeah i hope they're doing well i was enjoy i enjoyed their beer and then um i had a boneyard ipa which just it seems like a timeless like there's one beer that's timeless maybe maybe sierra nevada pale is even more timeless but boneyard never gets old that's true it's always good all right uh should we talk about what we're going to talk about let's get let's get to it (laughs) all right so given that the warm weather is coming we're less than a month away from summer and that means shifting down from big boozy beers to lighter thirst quenchers we thought it would be a great opportunity to do one of our studies in style and look at that perfect belgian summer ale the wit beer if you think that sounds like a tame topic stay tuned because Jeff's going to disabuse you of that, and we're going to get into the deep history of the style, describe a beer that bears no resemblance to Blue Moon. Aw, it'll be a fun one. (laughs) All that soon, but first, the news. Back in August, we had Justin Lee from Dwinell Country Ales on the podcast. Remember that well? Yeah, show 165 if you're looking for it. Ooh, good for you. You looked it up. Thank you. (laughs) Uh, He joined us to discuss a lawsuit three Washington breweries filed against the state of Oregon. While Washington allowed Oregon breweries to self-distribute their beer across state lines, Oregon didn't reciprocate. Lee, who was a legal advisor on the case, thought this was a violation of federal law. At the time, he told us it would probably take years to resolve, but nope, 
Oregon has quickly settled the case, and Washington breweries can now drive their beer across the Columbia River. First, that's awesome. I know. Second, I absolutely agree that that seems like a clear violation of the Interstate Commerce Clause. You can't, oh. you can't, you can't do one thing for your uh, domestic producers and another thing for, I mean, your in-state producers and another thing for the cross state. You have to treat everybody the same. That seemed like an obvious one, but I'm no lawyer. No, but I think um, I would love to hear. It, it happened so fast; it made me feel as a as a sometime journalist like, "Ooh, there's a story here," and I'm. I would love to hear why Oregon capitulated so fast. Because in one thing that um, uh, uh, Justin told me, he he expected to take five years. Yeah. Um, and the fact that it took like eight months <laughs> so, is very surprising. And I wonder if one of the lawyers just said, "You guys don't have a leg to stand on. You you're just going to be burning money." To yeah, I figure that's got to be it, right? Like they just like, yeah, you know, you're they're right and you're wrong, and you better just clear this and save money yeah uh, that's also true that the olcc has been having its own little pr issues lately with oh with, my with the muckety mucks shoving bottles of old grandpappy or whatever it's called down their shorts to, <laughs> to yeah. make money uh what was that whiskey called uh pappy van winkle pappy van winkle yeah <laughs> old pappies that's old. a that's a different product altogether i know but uh, <laughs> you don't want to you don't want to pappies down your uh Shoving it down your pants. I'm just saying. <laughs> that was a, that was a crude euphemism for for uh, hoarding it and not actually distributing it like they're supposed to. Right. So in Oregon, all uh, uh, alcohol has to go through is actually bought by the state. Then they turn around and uh, sold at licensed to sellers and sold and and yeah and sell it to licensed sellers. So it's a completely closed market, and they were benefiting from that by getting the deliveries of very rare whiskey. And it not making it to the retailers. Yeah, and it's a weird classic Oregon kind of corruption in that they were actually paying for it. Apparently, like uh, they, you know, in, if you're going to do corruption Chicago style, you just you just grab the box. Right. I mean, <laughs> yeah. you're actually paying for it, creating a money trail, and uh, it's just uh, yeah. Someone was wise enough to know that on the on the spreadsheet, there's got to be some money there to cover that. Um, but apparently, you can turn around and resell. There's no evidence that. But they did, but uh, it still was a bad look, and lots of people resigned. And yeah, yeah, the head of the OLCC was out. Yeah, and there's a whole bunch of troubles. It's it's now it used to be the Oregon Liquor Control Commission, and uh -huh. it's now the Oregon Liquor and Cannabis Commission. That's right. Speaking on, of corruption, yeah, that's right. On the <laughs> cannabis side, it's even worse. Massive corruption there with an with a a company who uh, has a bunch of dispensaries in town and or in in the state, and that's a whole mess. So the OLCC is in trouble. And just to add to all of that, you asked me recently about stats from the OLCC. Yeah, actually because of Rogue. I wanted to check on Rogue. <laughs> right. That was why. That was one of the things the OLCC did was provide the, a service of, of identifying uh, the taxes paid, which sub, which would tell you how much beer was being sold in the state. And right. you could look and see how, how well different breweries were doing. And about two years ago, they just stopped doing that and said they kind of waved it away and said, ah, we have software stuff. We'll get back to it eventually. And it just they're just not doing it. So the OLCC is not looking good right now. No. Yeah. No. It's the problem always when you have, in fact, I have a whole paper I published about this. It's like when you create uh, uh, um, obstacles to markets, you create rents. And then that creates the obvious opportunities for rent seeking. And so... Right. Um, as soon as you start creating these uh, these non-competitive markets, then 
then it's almost impossible to, to stop the rent seeking that happens. And sure enough. Yeah. Uh, we could go on and on about, uh, some of the stuff <laughs> in the, in the, on the cannabis side, which, uh, I have to know pretty well cause my wife used to be in the business. Um, you also have this other weird thing where you have a closed, a closed, uh, market. It's not really a free market because you can only sell in Oregon. Right. So if you're trying to grow, you can't sell to California and Idaho and yeah. Washington. So that also really perverts it. And the state decided we will put no cap on the amount of cannabis that can be produced. Right. Only what, uh, you know, you, you can't ship it out of state. But of course, well, you, if you can, but not legally. <laughs> and if you create this incentive by right. having exactly. massive overproduction, then it is going to get out of yeah. the state. So, yeah, what That's, a disaster. Yep. See, there just needs to be more economists in the room for all of this stuff because if economists might be uh, bad at a lot of things, but they're good at incentives. Well, now I just have to say this because I'm. I, this, this irritated me more than just about anything. Uh, the entire cannabis industry said, if you do it this way, if you don't put a cap on the producers, uh, what will happen is there will be a massive oversupply. You're going to get too many licenses and all of that's going to go on the black market. And the one thing that OLCC said or the state said going into cannabis is our number one priority is that there will, we will shut down the black market. Everything must lead to this goal. Right. And then they made this choice and they looked at the cannabis industry and said, we don't trust you because you're all drug dealers and you're not reliable and <laughs> you're all <stoners>. your information <laughs> is no good. So we're not going to do that. And here we are. Yeah. So that's Oregon in a nutshell. I don't know. You probably said about a lot of states, but Oregon in particular seems like a little like high level of incompetence. Although, speaking of the latest scandal, given how much we pay our public officials, that also doesn't doesn't surprise me. Yeah, I know. We were paying our second highest public official, $73,000 Secretary of State, who recently resigned. Yeah, we don't have a lieutenant governor, so it's, so it's the second highest. And, and the governor doesn't do much better. But... No, we looked it up. on the, We looked the governor up just to see because uh, we, we heard that statistic, and I think she makes 120 or something. No, 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 no. She, uh, she makes 90, oh, no, 93. 93. 93. Yeah. And uh, the closest, uh, uh, the California, the, the local newspaper gave the California Washington figures, and they're about half of Washington and about a third of California's. It's it's a crazy. multi it's a multi billion dollar budget. She uh, is you know ostensibly the head of. If you had a company, uh, you know, a private company that had uh, you know twenty. Uh, billion dollars of revenue, would you pay that CEO $93,000? No, you'd probably pay him a little bit more. And then on the other side, Oregon has is one of the only states that doesn't have any campaign contribution limits. Right. And we're awash, <laughs> awash with cash flowing into elected officials. And so it's just like the worst recipe for corruption you can possibly imagine. And it's a one-party state. Democrats, I'm a Democrat, I'll say it, but they're in control. They got to clean their own house. Uh, well, uh, boy, people are loving our new our new. Uh, <laughs> it all our gets back to beer because <laughs> our, our new podcast, Politics Today. Uh, uh, today. Well, I will say that uh, it was heartening to me to see that when this thing ha- happened, the Secretary of State, uh, the Democrats went after her, and she re- she had to resign within a week. Which we're not seeing the same kind of thing happening nationally. Yeah, so. and and actually, what I was going to to tie the the two together was as soon as they published the salary and talked about how the salary is so low, I remembered from the OLCC scandal that the OLCC people, there's like five or six people who make 150 grand there, right? Because they're dealing with, and so... Well, and, and, just and so with departments, you can put it higher. I think I think the salaries are set for public officials. They're set by the, the by legislature. The legislature yeah. Whereas 
uh, when you're trying to hire people to run agencies, you got to pay them properly. Or right. Else you're not going to get anybody. Right. But, so yeah. you think of elected officials as not being a part of a market, but sure, candidates are part of the market. Okay, let's get to the yeah. second news here. <laughs> We've got to move on. The next item is an unhappy one. Oh, great. Uh, so brace yourself. Michigan-based Founders Brewing, now owned by Spain's Mahu, is back in the news. Oh, right. Two weeks ago, an employee of their Detroit taproom filed a lawsuit against the company for racial discrimination. This is the second employee to do so, and she seems to have a strong case. She cited a number of troubling incidents, and her manager signed an affidavit corroborating her claims. If you'd like to read more about it, the Detroit Free Press has an extensive article detailing the case. A few hours after she filed the lawsuit, Founders announced it was closing the Detroit taproom. Yeah, I saw the I saw the announcement, and knowing their troubled past, I thought, hmm. Yeah, and for me, this is, if, if anybody who listens to the podcast enjoys Founders, I would say, this don't don't drink Founders. There's a lot of good beer out there, and this is a troubled company with not cool people running it, and there's no reason anyone should ever drink their beer. Yeah, too many good, too many other good choices. Yeah, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, to do with people like that. It's 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 pretty surprising to me that the parent company did not clean house after after the last case, which they had to settle out of court um, some years ago, mm-hmm. uh, and. You know, that's a huge liability, and you would expect them to clean up the company culture, but they didn't, obviously. Are the people who started and ran the business and uh, still there after the buyout? I don't know. Oh. It's a Michigan company, and yeah. so I don't know that much about it. Yeah. But anyway, uh, I almost didn't want to throw this on here because it's so depressing. But um, I know we have people from all over the country. Yeah, what are other good beers you can buy in the upper Midwest? Uh, well, if you're in Wisconsin, you can definitely get yourself some New Glarus. If you're in Michigan, Bell's is Bell's uh, rocking. I mean, there's a million places in, in the upper Midwest. All right, so go get a Bell's, go get a New Glarus, go get something. Yeah. Jolly Pumpkin makes a, uh, I think they make a wit beer relevant Ooh. relevant to this podcast. They nice segue, my friend. They, they definitely make Belgian-style ales, which may come up in a future podcast. So uh, there you go. Stay tuned. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's uh, let's get to it then, since you've so brilliantly segued us into the topic. Thank you. Jeff is here to tell us all about wit beer. All right. Let's start with what the hell wit beer means. Uh, that's a good place to start. So wit is uh, the ooh. how people describe me. First, uh, yes, we, he's you're a very, wit. You're a very what a good, what a good wit he is. Uh, I think it's got to be. It, no, it's it, it is. Sorry, I just I, I seized up. Belgium is one of those places that has two languages, yes. so you have to stop and think. Wait, which one does this come from? <laughs> so the Flemish or Dutch is is wit for wheat, um, but these are also known as beer blanche, which uh, means white. Right. And so white beer is kind of a, a, a pan European thing, which refers to wheat beers. And the reason is because. When they made wheat beers, they would not kiln the barley portion of the wheat mm-hmm. of, the, of these beers. So they would use what they would call uh, wind malting, or just leave them out in the sun mm-hmm. to dry after germination. Right. So absolutely no heat was applied. So it was as pale as it can be. It's as pale as it grows. Right. And then they would either use raw wheat uh, or do the same process with the wheat if they malted it. And so it produces a beer that's as pale as it can be, very very pale. And because it has this high proportion of wheat in the grist it's it's uh, cloudy so it looks gives it a little milky color and it looks white mm-hmm. so wheat beer uh is often called white beer and you, you see that in uh countries like throughout europe so when we talk about weiss beer in in uh, uh germany weiss does not mean 
Weisse does not mean uh, wheat. It means white, and it's that same thing. Yeah, so. that's. Uh, it's funny that you you hesitate for a moment because that's always my hesitation with wit beer. I always uh, doubt myself. Like, wait, is that the wheat or the white? It could be the white. It could be the white or the wheat. I'm not sure because I. But I think it's. I think it means wheat, but maybe it means white. But it's okay. But essentially, we're talking about the same beer, yeah. so you can call it wit or white. Uh, why did they not kiln the the barley? Why did they decide to use un un uh, unkilled barley? Is that a conscious decision or just part of the? I don't know. That's it's it's a very the white beers of uh, Europe are really old and. I, it, it's a curious, it's a curious connection because there's not so many connections in in other beers. When you look, mm-hmm. when, you, when you cross the the Belgian German border, uh, even even in the old days when it was still ale country up there in the north uh, of what we now call Germany, it the beers were quite different than they were in Belgium. And it's it's one of those weird things because it keeps going. You, you go to uh, you know all across. Northern Germany, you mm-hmm. have Berliner Weisse, so that's the Berlin's Weisse beer. But then, if you keep going, you get to what is what is now Poland, and you get into uh, Grodziski country, which is wheat beer, and, mm-hmm. and so this kind of band um, uh, wheat beer, and they were always made that way. Whereas production methods in other beers that people made were were highly localized. So it's a it's a it's a wonderful question. I've never seen anything to to suggest. Uh, why that was the case, although you'll hear uh, people make connections between Goza, which is a sourish wheat beer made in Germany, mm-hmm. and Goza, which is a sourish wheat beer made in Brussels. Um, I don't know how much uh, truth there is to these things. It's we're, we're back into a period where we didn't have a lot of good documentation for uh, for these yeah. for the for, for beer, and certainly not trans. So I'm throwing out a hypothesis. I have no idea. I have just no basis, any fact. But I'm just wondering: is there like a was there like a wheat growing belt in that kind of latitude of Europe or something? That yeah, really... I think there was a wheat growing belt, and you know, part of this is goes goes to uh, laws. And and in Bavaria, one of the reasons they passed the Rheinheitsgebot vote in the 16th century is to protect wheat from brewers. No, right. So for as, as a food store, right. So in other countries where uh, wheat was allowed in the brewing, you know, they didn't have those same laws. So even that, it, you know, because you have all these different, especially over the centuries, these are different kingdoms and yeah. duchies and all that stuff. Yeah. So I, I, it's a, it's a curious thing. Although the law, we're going to talk about Hugarden, which is where this style comes from. Mm-hmm. Uh, will come into play. Uh, for why Hugarden, which is this village of about 10,000 people now and was never very big, uh, became such a famous brewing place. But but I'm getting ahead of myself. We should talk about some of the other wheat beers that okay. were being made around there. Yes, sorry. I'm, I'm derailing your, your lecture. Go ahead. No, it's all right. <laughs> I, I, we we definitely want to derail our lectures because this should not be a lecture. <laughs> no one's tuning in for a lecture. All right. Okay, so I'll do one last one then. I'm just really curious. So these days, uh, you can get that same uh, unmalted barley uh, to to brew your own wheat beer easily, like this is a commercial product now. No, oh, okay. no, it's really an old school thing. Okay, yeah, yeah. Now, uh, I, now you just have like a really pale malt. Yeah, so so now uh, people will just get their 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 raw wheat or their their malted wheat from a malt house. And dude is casing your house. Some teenager just took a picture of your. House. I saw that. I think he was taking a picture of my gorgeous front lawn, which yeah. Sally and I have been working on for a couple of years to try to get it in shape and. You okay. wouldn't think a sixteen-year-old 
dude would be interested in your front lawn, but he was certainly interested in something. So. It's true. Uh, in a very Portland move, we've decided to get rid of our lawn and, and replace it with moss, which is really starting to pan out. The moss is really coming in. So yeah, until, right. the, until the 90, next 90 degree sunny day comes and kills it all. No, moss always comes back. That's the beauty. It will come back, yes. Uh, we now have really derailed it, yeah, <laughs> but it's not my fault. There's a guy outside the studio casing it out. Just, 100% your fault to I draw think, attention to something people can't even see. I think people have figured out like you know, where Virvana Central is and now so I think I think you do point to an interesting fact, which is uh, beer it, beer production now is almost entirely commercial. But it was uh, up until the 20th century far more variegated. So yeah. you had uh, homebrew setups, and you also had non-commercial farm brewers. Mm-hmm. And many of the farm brewers would treat their own uh, grow their own grain to put in their beer. And if you're an, if you don't have your own malt house, it's a lot easier to malt uh, by not having. If you don't have a kiln, it's easier to just lay it out. Right. So I think that probably contributed to sure. the rise of a lot of these styles. Yeah. Which I'm going to just mention some of these now because this is actually the region. If you can imagine in your mind the, a kidney shaped uh, small country, which mm-hmm. is Belgium, yeah. and Brussels is sort of right in the middle. So we're talking about everything from Brussels north up to Antwerp uh, and then east um, almost to the uh, German border. So mm-hmm. kind of kind of the off-center heart of Belgium that we're talking about is the, where, all, where these styles mainly came from. Right. And there were a bunch of them. So there was the, the Hoogarden one, which, which is, we're going to talk about and I'll tell you much more about that one. But there were others that were also really famous. There were two from Leuven, which is the famous... Uh, brewing capital it's always been the capital of brewing in in, in, right. in the country um it's where there's the biggest uh brewing school and a brewing research center and right. it's a really important place um one was called Bier blanche and one was called peterman and peterman only died out in the 20th century uh of course lambic was near brussels there was safe beer pronounced uh, spelled s-e-e-f uh, but pronounced safe beer safe beer uh, and that was in Antwerp. And then uh, there was a wheat beer in a little town called Diest. And I'm not sure that's how you pronounce it, but D-I-E-S-T. I've never been there. Yeah. And again, I think that's a Dutch word. But um, so there you go. I don't know. And then finally, we get to Hoogarden, which is this little town uh, in that region east of Brussels. And it was historically in a little tiny seam between two duchies or official jurisdictions which would, yeah. yeah which would tax their beer right but Hoogarden didn't live in either of them. It was sort of this little independent thing uh-huh. and so guess what that meant there was a lot of brewers who were like I'm going to Hoogarden because right. I can make my beer for super cheap speaking of incentive <laughs> exactly right uh, and at one point there were something like 38 breweries there mm-hmm. uh, and it had probably five to ten thousand people in thirty-eight breweries. So that just—that's a—that's a interesting. That is interesting for, from your perspective as an economist. And why you continue to tell us about Hoogarden? I grabbed the bottle of Hoogarden we have to try. Uh, the original Belgian white beer they call it from fourteen forty-five. Inaccurate. Okay. And I will tell you the story because Excellent. let's the beer, go. The, the beer that was brewed until nineteen fifty-seven <laughs> in Hoogarden. Uh-huh was uh, in no way like this beer. The, it, was, it, was, it was in one respect like this beer. It was made with wheat. 
<laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, beyond that, nothing at all like it. It was a spontaneous ale. It was made oh, really? like Lambic. Yeah. Uh-huh. But interestingly, uh, it was quite different than Lambic in that it was... There we go. Oh, nice. that was extra bonus. <laughs> uh, it was um, made to be drunk almost immediately. And so sort of like a traditional ale, mm-hmm. uh, you see these things in all over the world. Uh, traditional ales that are spontaneously fermented, and you've got to drink them really fast before they uh, they go sour because they've got a lot of lactobacillus in them, which right. is exactly what this beer had. Uh. Had a lot of lactobacillus. And so they were trying to get these out and to the market and drunk before Quickly. two weeks. Like you had two weeks to get it drunk <laughs> or else it got too tart. Yeah. Um, the other kind of salient thing is uh, there There was basically no mention of, uh, of any spicing. So we think mm. of this as a classic beer that has coriander and, and orange peel. Well, we will think about it once you tell us. That's yes. right. That's right. Um, but that was not really... That was not a thing. So it, it, yeah. it's not impossible that uh, some brewers used spice because that's a really classic Belgian thing. And it's also not, it's not, would also not be uh, uncommon. It would also have been common for them not to mention they use spice, even if they did use spice. So the absence of the mention of spice does not mean the absence of spice. Right. Um, in Belgian brewing, that's pretty typical. Yeah. But nevertheless. Um, yeah. On their label, coriander and orange peel is there. And that's pretty common yeah. um, in years now so the last of these breweries died out in 1957 it was called the thompson brewery and um and then the, the beer that we have in our hand was sort of the successor which i'll talk about but let's taste it yeah let's taste it definitely have that belgian yeast and it's also got all the spice aroma too which mm-hmm. you can tell uh especially if you're familiar with belgian yeast you can tell why these spices were selected why they're common because they really pick up the a lot of the same flavor notes yeah so the the aromas you know belgians are wonderful with spice because they work with innate flavors in the beer right subtle mm-hmm. and it is milky white mm-hmm. i mean it's Naturally not really cloudy like, as, the, as the label says it's not white like milk but for beer it looks whitish you can see where the name comes mm-hmm. from so it's got a it's it's uh, finishes pretty dry, but it's it's reasonably sweet on the tongue. Yeah. So this beer is that we're drinking is a successor to the original beer that that I'll talk about in a minute. Mm-hmm. It's now made by Anheuser Busch InBev and a big faceless. Uh, oh, is that right? I didn't realize. Big, yeah, big faceless uh, brewery. I'm not even sure this one may actually be made in America, um, but but but. No, it, this one is imported. Is it okay? Yeah. So. That's made at the Jupiler Brewery, uh, or at least the last I heard, mm. which is the big, the big industrial brewery that makes the most popular lager. In, yeah, it in says Belgium. brewed by InBev Belgium in Hoogarden. Oh, in Hoogarden it says. It does, yeah. Oh, well, is they that, do have. They did not Jupiler then. They did no. They did. They did make a very big brewery for making this beer, but I thought they closed it down. But perhaps not, or maybe they don't have the same labeling requirements. So that's. An <laughs> case. I don't know. That's an interesting case. Yeah. Um, so we're kind of getting backwards. We'll, we'll touch on that in a minute. But the, the fascinating thing is there was this, this guy named Pierre Chellis mm-hmm. who lived in Hoogarden. And when he was a younger man, he worked at that Thompson Brewery, T-O-M-S-I-N, uh, not as a brewer. 
apparently. Right. Um, but he was just a young guy, and I think he got job. You know, he got up. He picked up some some work there. Mm-hmm. The the accounts make it sound like it was fairly informal. The the last brewery closes. And he's driving a milk truck. He's 40 years old, and he's pining for the flavors of, of old Hugard's ale. Mm-hmm. And he decides to get in touch with one of the old brewers who was making it. Actually, not at the Thompson Brewery, at a different brewery. Mm-hmm. Um, got a recipe, and then he starts making it in provisional equipment that he has put in his cow shed. <laughs> he's cobbled together. Uh-huh. Uh, and he's making it kind of in the old way to begin with, it sounds like. He's making it with spontaneous uh, he's making it spontaneously fermented, and, and he's really confused about the adding yeast because he never, when he was at the brewery, he never saw anybody add yeast. It's like, <laughs> what do you mean you add yeast? I don't under, I don't understand. And um, but he, but he, the the beer that he comes up with is the beer, more or less the beer that we're drinking now. It's mm-hmm. a beer that's not made with spontaneous fermentation. Right. He goes away from that, and commercially, you can see why it would be almost be impossible sure. uh, to. Try to get a beer out to people in 15 days is really hard unless yeah. they're just, you know, unless you can just serve it at your pub and it's just blowing really fast. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think in order to give it more character and make it seem more interesting, he did add these spices. Um, and he always talked about a secret spice that he put in. <laughs> nobody ever nobody ever knew. There were, I, I saw somebody speculate that maybe it was cumin, but nobody knows. Right. Um, and maybe the secret was there was no secret spice. You know, mm-hmm. Belgians are really good about that. They always, one of the ingredients in, in Belgian beer is always mystery. So <laughs> he definitely included that. Uh, and so he he started his little brewery there, and um, he originally called it uh, Oud Hugard's beer, which old old Hugard's, which mm-hmm. it wasn't. It was new. <laughs> it was new Oud Hugard's, uh-huh. and it kind of didn't go for a while, but. But then eventually it did. It started to become more and more popular. And uh, Artois, who was independent at the time, mm-hmm. uh, still Artois fame, uh, purchased uh, a portion of the brewery. And then in 1985, it burned down. Mm-hmm. And so uh, he sold the remainder of his stake to Artois, who was then, I think, uh, owned by Interbrew. Um, anyway, the, the company that would eventually be one of the principal companies that became Anheuser-Busch InBev. Right. Uh, is the, was, was one of the ones that, that started at Artois. Uh, and he sold it to them, stayed with the brewery until 1990, and, and it became quite big at that point. By the time he left in 1990, was selling a quarter million barrels uh, in, in Europe principally, mm-hmm. um, which is a pretty darn big brewery. Yeah. So, so for nine years, it was completely extinct. And then uh, he starts this new thing, basically recreates the beer from scratch, right. and now it is a major international concern, selling quite a bit of beer. I mean, two hundred fifty thousand barrels is a drop in the bucket yeah. for for you know Anheuser Busch standards, but for just a regular brewery, that would make it you know that would, that would it slightly smaller than Deschutes or something. It's yeah. a pretty darn big brewery. And tasting the beer, you can kind of see why it's light. It's very quaffable. It's Easy drinking, but it's got a lot of flavor. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's silky on the tongue because of the wheat. You definitely taste the wheat flavor. I get like the banana phenols from the yeast coming through, but also you get a little bit of the Christmas maybe from the orange peel. Or I don't know. You tell me what you how you would evaluate it. There is uh, so the banana is actually an ester, but there's also phenol. Sorry, ester. Yeah. Yes, uh, but there's also that there's a spicy note that is phenols too. Mm. So that's usually comes across as clove. You said Christmas. I think that's what you're getting. Mm. 
And it works really well. And those, those phenols. Ah, yes. That's definitely it. Now, now that you put the name on it. Yeah. Yeah. Those phenols are actually kind of hard to work with. They're a reason why when, when American brewers were trying to use really expressive yeast in their IPAs, they defaulted to British styles because they don't have that note. That yeah. note really clashes with hops. Yeah. Um, but it, it works really well with other spices. Yeah. So. What, what kind of hopping does this get? Uh, if any, it, it gets some, but not very much. Yeah. And it, 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 I don't know, I don't know about Hoo Garden, but right, but I just mean sort of by style. Yeah, by style, be hopped. It would be like just to provide a little bitterness. Yeah, like fifteen BUs, and mm-hmm. it would you're going to go for uh, what the Belgians almost always go for, which is a classic uh, European noble type hop. Yeah. Um, so a pretty delicate, but earthy, spicy, maybe slightly floral. Yeah. Um, it really. I, I don't know if they're the hops here are I don't detect any hops right no I don't detect any hops either <laughs> that's interesting now you put a name on it I really detect the clove and maybe sort of a cinnamon note maybe that's the coriander I don't know mm. <clears throat> yeah coriander is a cool a cool flavor it kind of goes a lot of different directions it can be citrusy it can be sweet it can be yeah a little bit I think maybe the uh, the seed itself contributes some tannins yeah so I don't know that's so, a, so it's four point nine percent alcohol by volume, at least the one they send us. Uh, it's very, very easy drinking, and I can, as I was going to say, I can totally imagine if you're like a, a lager drinker, you know, a, a, a mass market lager drinker, that this is a beer that sort of hits a lot of the same base notes, but has a ton more flavor and character. Yeah, yeah. The, the interesting thing that happened next is this beer comes to the United States and does what you're talking about. It has that appealing, it's not really a familiar flavor. I think people no. probably found it as really unusual. But it's familiar looking. I mean, it's cloudy, but it's a light effervescent beer, a lot like the Budweiser you might be drinking or whatever. Right. <clears throat> but I think people just were gra- they gravitated to it because it's so approachable. Yeah. It's weird, and uh, but, but safe, safely weird, not weird weird. Right. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and the interesting thing is, Chellis, um, after he, he closed down the brewery uh, or left the brewery in 1990, when he was let's see, so he was he was 40 in 1966. So how old is he in 1990? He's he's getting to be old. Can you uh, do the math? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, <laughs> we can add 24 years, so that's 64. 64. So he kind of retires, it's a good retirement age, and he decides to move to Texas, which is a, I've never heard any reason about why he moved to Texas. Uh. And he, after a couple of years, was rattling around and he thought, ah, I'm going to start my own brewery again. And he started the Chellis Brewery. Right. In, in, I uh, knew that Austin. name sounded familiar. Yeah. <laughs> and he made one product, wheat beer. I think he may have made it like a Grand Cru as well, which right. is the same beer, but stronger. Right. But basically he opened a brewery just to make more wheat beer. And uh, he did that. That was like around 1992. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that became this this spark for other brewers who had never tasted a beer like this. Um, customers as well, of course, but other brewers yeah. too. Um, and one of them was in was working as a brewer at Otter Creek in Vermont. Okay. His name was Rob Todd, mm-hmm. and he got a bottle of this because this stuff happens. Breweries will receive bottles from around the country, or somebody will come by and say, I had this interesting thing, you want to try it? From Chellis, and it really galvanized him. He thought it was awesome. So he would go off and in a year's time have his own brewery 
and actually it was like could be legendary or slightly apocryphal but he, <laughs> he repeats this story and it, it has it has that kind of beautiful uh narrative quality that we all like and it must so it must be true. so it must be true so a year after he tasted that first beer he he opens his own brewery uh allagash selling one beer a wit beer of course allagash was going to sell many more beers but um that wit beer was the first beer that that they brewed and it was the beer that he was really transfixed with yeah so that was in 1995 that that first beer came online uh and we're going to talk about that in a bit, but um, there's another one too, also from 1995, that that had much cooler provenance, I think, than people would guess. Uh-huh. Like Blue Moon. Um, so I'm talking about Blue Moon. You, what what would you guess? Do you know the story of Blue Moon? I think I've heard it in the past, but I don't really remember. But what I would guess, if you were asking me to guess now, is that. Coors looked around and said, hey, let's find a new product. Let's create something, but let's try to pretend like it's not us. So we'll, we'll create this little brewery within a brewery and uh, brew a different kind of beer called Blue Moon and, and start another line, yeah, another brand, basically. And it's, there's something tawdry about that story, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's very corporate and cynical. And, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's not that way at all. It's <laughs> yeah, actually a much cooler story. There are there are little synapses in my brain that remember that that's not quite the story. But yeah, probably because you've told me this in the past. I know. I mean, I'm, I I I must have known this story. I'm just I, the reason we're doing this is because I'm writing an article for Craft Beer and Brewing, and I was reviewing all this history. The guy's name was Keith Villa, and mm-hmm. he grew up uh, really close to Golden, Colorado. Mm-hmm. Went and worked the hometown company mm-hmm. uh, after he got, graduated from college. And they said, you know what? We have some money. Would you like to go to the University of Brussels and get a brewing degree? Mm-hmm. And he said, why, sure, that would be very cool. <laughs> so he went to Brussels and got his PhD in like brewing microbiology or brewing astrophysics or brewing something. <laughs> it was like a really technical thing connected to brewing. Uh-huh. And while he was there, uh, you know, he learned all about making cool Belgian beers. And when he got back... Uh, they they said, okay, you're going to be our director of special projects or whatever. You're going to like figure out cool, weird beers to make. Right. And you get no money, and you get no backing, and good luck to you. <laughs> <laughs> and so he says, okay, I'm going to make this cool beer that I had when I was in Belgium, because I think it would be pretty popular, and I really like it. Mm-hmm. And uh, Coors Field is owned by the Coors Company, of course, mm-hmm. in in. Uh, in Denver, mm. and they had their own little brew pub there. So he made a beer called Belly Slide Belgian White, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> which was basically the beer that would become Blue Moon. And he made other beers as well um, to sell there. But it was an R and D project, and customers really, really liked it. Mm-hmm. And then eventually, Coors got with the program and, and built everything up around it. Right. But he is an incredibly well-educated guy who learned how to brew in Belgium, who has a PhD in Belgium, and came back and brewed this beer, which is far less tawdry if you know that part of the story. Right, right. It's, uh, it's a bunch impressive. Of, than a bunch of people in lab coats doing market surveys and figuring out how to create the lowest <laughs> common denominator craft beer. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and, I, and I feel like I have, I've, I've defended Blue Moon as being a pretty respectable beer in the past, mm-hmm. um, and I think it is. I think it's, it's pretty well-balanced. I think that in the classic way of, of large breweries, they have really pitched it at a, at a slightly sweeter and much more less intense palate yeah. uh, than you would find in other places. And so that's why it sells two million barrels a year now. It's the it's by far the biggest 
depending on how you use this term, craft beer in the country, right. uh, the single biggest brand. Um, they sell a tremendous amount of it because it is appealing and, and, and palatable. But I think it's less tawdry than people think, less less uh, <laughs> less cynical. Um, yeah. It was not a cynical Yeah, beer. the provenance is less cynical. I think after that, you know, they Coors built it up, but then didn't put their name to it, right? So yeah. I think that's what people start getting. Like, wait a minute, what's going on here? Right. The other one, though, is the one that you and I know better, I think. We certainly drink more of, uh, the one from Maine. And we should talk a little bit about that while we have this one, maybe. Yes. You, you, uh, so you were you, you had a nice experience with this beer. Why don't you talk about it? Well, yeah. So uh, just uh, for reference, I was trying to find it here in town for this podcast, and I couldn't. But the reason why I really wanted it, because for one, it's kind of this amazing story that Allagash became this crazy success based on this white beer, this wit beer. Uh, and uh, the other reason is that when you're in Maine, it's like the beer of Maine. It's everywhere. It's become, I think it's a source of great local pride, but it's just a sort of anachronistic, like that's the beer everybody drinks, which is this crazy white beer. And Allagash's is quite, um, uh, it has all the same characteristics. It's quite dry. Um, it has a lot of flavor, so it's not just like, you know, a beer you don't think about when you're drinking. But I, my, my, my theory about why in Maine, and this is probably uh, one wrong and two biased by the fact that I spend the time on the coast, is uh, because it's so um, dry and crisp, it really balances well with the, he the heavy, rich seafood shellfish, particularly, um, that you end up eating a lot in Maine, particularly lobster and clams and things like that, I find it pairs super well because it offers this crisp palate cleanser. Um, so maybe that's part of it, uh, but um, I imagine it's also just part of this sort of quirk of history that they came out with it and it was a Maine beer and people glommed onto it and it was easy to, it was, it was an approachable beer. But it always surprises me because unlike even Hogarten's a bit sweet yeah. and pretty peeling to the tongue, Allagash's is not. Allagash's is, is dry. It's dry as a bone. Yeah. I know. I, I, I have been drinking. So that that both of those beers, Blue Moon and Allagash, both came out in '95, which is fascinating. They make kind of interesting trajectories. Uh, yeah. You know, the the direction of both of those beers, both the way they're made and the way that they they prospered. Um, so you know, over the decades, I have had a lot of Allagash white when I'm in Maine, and I'm always surprised at how yeah. how dry and kind of austere austere and sophisticated is yeah it's not a crushable beer it's it really i feel like allagash the dna of allagash is really built into that beer it's like we're gonna make you know we think that belgium makes the best beers in the world and they're really sophisticated and elegant and we want to do that with our wit beer and it's really shocking to me that they now sell that much beer to mainers who Drink it like it's Bud Light. I mean, and, it's, it's I know, and the, and the dissonance is exactly that because you can walk into a grocery store in Maine and you'll have the big like suitcase of Bud Light cans. You'll have the same thing with Allagash White. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it sits there and they'll be on a big sale, like whatever. It's just it, it, it has all of the trappings of this like completely inoffensive, easy drinking beer, uh, and you get it home and you crack it open and you're like whoa <laughs> it's yeah. not at all it's, it's really the case i mean it's uh, that was a weird way to say it it's a great beer it's just not sweet it's not like it's it's not uh, uh flavorless it's um it's got a lot of character yeah it really does uh so we have i have poured out another uh beer so we couldn't get uh, algash out here in oregon apparently you said that they did actually 
How, you found it at John's Marketplace. I, well, they told me that they normally have Allagash. They just didn't have any right now. They did have a beer on tap, apparently a collab with uh, DuPont. Um, I didn't I didn't explore that any further because I couldn't stop and drink it. I may have to stop in and get that. That sounds pretty awesome. I know. <laughs> uh, yeah, so it, it, it's obviously a lot harder to get it out in the other Portland than it is in the original Portland. But, yeah. but we have uh, a local product here, which I thought was sort of interesting because... It, it comes from Brinkside, mm-hmm. Brinkside Wit or White. What do they call it? They call it White. White, I guess White. Um, it's Blue Moon Belgian White and it's Allagash White. White seems to be the American. Yeah, I can imagine if you're sitting around deciding what to call it for a marketplace, White just is a little easier because people won't necessarily know. But White is evocative of what you're going to find. Right. You know, you expect when you when you pour this beer out, you expect a very light colored beer. Although this one, by the way, <laughs> totally is not so white. <laughs> no, it's it looks like a Hellas. It does, yeah. It's like got the color. It's very it's very uh, sunny. Yeah. Uh, looking. Yeah. What's really fascinating to me is this beer is brand new and it's going to be part of uh, Breakside's regular supermarket. Uh, year, year round. They're yeah. year round. It's a you know twelve ounce package mm-hmm. it's not a specialty one-off and you just don't really see a lot of wit beers anymore there's it's not a style that people are you know 20 years ago everybody made a wit beer it was yeah. like really common but uh not so much now so it's interesting to see this kind of come back and i thought we'd give it a shot yeah it's got all the right uh scent notes on the noses it's not as cloudy as i expected and that could be yeah because the can settled out in the can i'm not sure maybe uh, it's got lighter uh, use of the coriander. The, the, the spices are lighter, and the wheat really pops a little bit more for me. Really? The, yeah. the flavor of the wheat? Because I, I was about to guess that they use a lot less wheat uh, and more barley in this. Mm. The grainy flavor is more present. <laughs> I'm not sure no. if I'm tasting wheat or I don't know. I'm just uh, just guessing. Barley. I'm the I'm the novice. You're the expert. But no, I think that is wheat. <laughs> it tastes weedy to me. Yeah. No, I, I definitely get the taste of wheat. It just it feels a little more. Um, I don't know. It's uh, I, I I sense a little bit more barley, but yeah. Well, you you have a good palate, so don't sell yourself short. You're often... <laughs> but you get all of the you get the. Um, uh, a little bit of the banana esters in there. You get the the phenols that not quite as much uh, clove as the Hogarden, and uh, not a little a tiny bit more hop, huh? Yeah, it could be. It's a little bit fuller bodied. Yeah, I think that's why I that's why I I, I talk about barley. That may or may not be the barley. Just uh, this one's it's only five point two. So the other one, Hogarden, is four point nine, which yeah. I think. One one side or the other five is right the where where you want it to be yeah. for the sweet spot for the style. Um, I had a blog post which by the time people hear this will be a week or two in the past uh, where I talk about styles and how styles are very weird, um, and I feel like sometimes we over determine beer based on our understanding of styles that it should be a more descriptive than prescriptive term, and it's used often more prescriptively in the United States. Sure, but I think about. Um, <laughs> how uh, how cellist he's like I'm gonna make uh, Hoogarden wit beer and he basically didn't make one at all he just completely made something else but we went along and continued to call it the same beer he even called it Ood Hogard's beer <laughs> right uh, and how you if you did that now 
uh, you could not get away with that. Like that would to be to be to re- <laughs> blasphemous. Yeah, yeah, to completely reinvent a, a, a beer style is not how we roll these days. So uh, that's curious to me. Um, you could. I, I often wonder there some of these other examples that I mentioned earlier. These other whites uh, had different production methods, different mm-hmm. uh, style components. There's nothing sacred about Curacao orange peel, which is the thing that the the type of orange Curacao orange that. Uh, Chellis used, which mm-hmm. most people use. That was what Hoogarden uses. Right. Um, Breaksize just says orange peel, so it's hard to say. Mm-hmm. Um, you wouldn't have to use those two. You could use something else. Some breweries do. Um, you wouldn't have to use them at all. You could use more lactic acid to create that flavor profile from the 19th century. There's a lot of things you could do, but nobody ever does it because the style is really set. It's, it's fascinating to me. Yeah. And, and, and in a weird way, set by Chellis, right? Like. Uh-huh. Nobody really knows what it was like before. <clears throat> yeah, I mean we we have the we have the description of the way it was made, and uh, you know you can kind of imagine. Oh, the other thing, the other fascinating thing, it was it was a very weak beer. Mm. It was like it was like uh, nine and a half Play-Doh or something, or nine Play-Doh, which uh, there's four points for Play-Doh, so we're talking about uh, you know ten. 40 or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, and, and it was very under attenuated. They, they talked about how uh, there was a, a guy who wrote in the mid 19th century about this beer and they had this, this test to see how well, uh, how, how much unfermented uh, malt or starch was still left in solution. And there was a ton of it left. Uh-huh. So it started out very weak and then it ended uh, un, you know, under fermenting, so it was probably like three percent or something. It was right. a very weak beer, right? And it, and it could well be that that additional starch and sweetness really helped balance the lactic. Like that was a part of the component. So right. it right. was probably a very different kind of beer. And uh, you know, it was a summery light beer. And and that was the other interesting thing is almost all the other Belgian styles nobody would brew them in the summer because it would get too weird and wild. Mm-hmm. They would inoculate them with too much wild stuff and it would be gross but they kept brewing these throughout the summer um so you know it was really described as a summery kind of beer right they would let it age longer in the winter but um they talked about it being refreshing and very sparkling like very foamy which would make sense for a beer like that Yeah, yeah um you know it's an interesting style that completely changed and if there was a brewery that wanted to do some creative fun stuff to you know, use some kettle souring or acid malt or something. I don't know. You probably have some fun with this style, but yeah. you never see that. Right? <laughs> so to kind of um, give a sort of a rough, since we're uh, talking about style, sort of what's accepted now, if you called something white or, or a wit beer, you'd expect a very light colored beer uh, with lots of wheat, cloudy probably, this one not so much. Right. Um, uh, Yeast, uh, yeast, yeast uh, esters present, particularly banana, and then having that spice of coriander and, and orange peel is now kind of accepted. The orthodoxy. The orthodoxy, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I think that's right. And then somewhere around 5% alcohol by volume, at least in the United States. That's where we're... Yep, I think that's all correct. Um, an excellent beer to have. It, it is an excellent beer. In the summertime. The, so the... To set up a podcast that we have planned for next week, yeah. uh, or next time, uh, so we talked about cellist, cellist coming here, cellist inspiring 
uh, Allagash, and then simultaneously through one of those weird moments, uh, completely independently, Keith Vila starts Blue Moon. Mm -hmm. Um, These are really the first Belgian beers that most Americans have had, Mm -hmm. and they are uh, among a wave of Belgian beers and Belgian breweries making Belgian beers or, Mm or having Belgian branding around themselves that begin to form over the next 20 years as Belgium has its heyday in America. Uh, and we're going to talk about how that turned out in our next podcast, just to tease that. Yeah, so stay tuned. <laughs> All right, well, I think we're getting close to being uh, out of time. We don't have any mailbag entries because of our own lack of activity. So I hope that uh, we're, we're, we are getting back on the regular schedule now. Um, honest, for real this time. That's right. We have uh, we Patrick and I actually talked about podcasts we have other ideas um we're, we're doing planning yeah we have, we have a roadmap we're, we're we're back we're back at it uh after a number of disruptions and no promises but we even talked about maybe uh improving our audio quality so yeah that was our that was our latest pre-production uh meeting <laughs> yes where it was about uh getting back to better audio quality so um hang in there <laughs> we'll get there soon uh but do do email us uh or or DM us, or somehow send up a semaphore some way. Communicate with us if you have thoughts, questions, comments. Those are those would be. We would love to have more mailbag. We'd love to hear what you're thinking. It yeah. makes us feel like we're not. Makes us feel like there are actually humans out there. So <laughs> help us out. All right. Well, a few words going out. Please subscribe to us on Apple, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please don't forget to rate us five stars, please. That helps other listeners find the show. As we just mentioned, we'd love to hear from you, and we mean it. Please send anything. Questions, comments, suggestions, criticisms, uh, bad jokes <laughs> to, uh, to Jeff at BeervanaBlog.com or on Twitter and Instagram, we're at BeervanaPod. Same handle, both places. Jeff blogs at the Beervana Blog. He's been quite active. Kudos. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. After my, my January hiatus, I came back. Yeah, Raring coming, to go. Coming back strong. We've got lots of good stuff on there lately. Uh, and he tweets it at Beervana. And Patrick sometimes tweets at Beeronomics. And he actually sometimes... Grams. Grams? At... Oh, I'm the main I'm the main grammar on the, at the Beervana pod Instagram. I'm trying to compliment you on that. And then you got to smack me down. Yeah, I just want to make sure if one of us is in the 21st century. You got the blogger on one side and you got the Instagrammer on the other. You choose. Hey man, look at our last look at the last gram. See who put that up there. <laughs> okay, I will. I haven't actually looked at the gram. <laughs> That's what I thought. <laughs> A lot of hot talk here. All right. Uh, well, uh, cheers Jeff. All right, cheers Patrick. Uh, well, how do you say cheers in Belgium? Prost. Prost. Oh. All right. It's like Proust, I think, is pronounced. Yeah, I did it the German way. Okay, Proust. Proust. Proust.